and they'll meet us back here at the end of the worship service after junior church. So as the children are just a junior, dismissed to junior church, uh, have fun and save some ice cream for your parents and the pastor. And um, as they're dismissed, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11 in your Bibles. And if, um, if you're a visitor here or you don't have a Bible with you, the Pew Bibles, this is page seven on your pew bible uh, page seven and it'll be the same translation you can also use an app on your phone or whatever you want to use but we're going to be looking at the tower of babel incident and my and my theme today is the tower of babel god intervenes to help humanity and prevent sin god intervenes to help humanity and prevent sin and as i introduce the theme just a quick aside we only have a couple more weeks of this sermon series and then i'm going to be going to begin a series on difficult times and uh, difficult subjects and i'm not dealing with like difficult times as one overall theme no i asked you if you recall a few months back to submit different things that you would like preached upon and I'm going to try to address those different subjects. How can, how can Christians consider, continue to follow the Lord, serve the Lord, maintain hope when the uh, innocent suffer? You know, that would be one subject. How can we continue when we're going through different sufferings or difficult times or trials and tribulations? But we got a few more sermons, two more, today and next week on Genesis. And today we want to deal with this Tower of Babel incident. What's that about, the Tower of Babel? Well, we're going to talk about that for a few moments. You know, I believe... The people in this Tower of Babel event were surprised. They didn't expect God to intervene the way that he did. Have you ever been surprised? How many of us like surprises? I kind of don't like surprises. I don't, just so y'all know. Roland likes surprises, good. Last week, I was trying to get here early as a, busy week, an exciting week with VBS and everything going on. And my oldest, who's about to turn 11 years old, Mercedes, said, uh, can I go with you? I said, sure. Well, I didn't leave as early as I wanted to. And so Meg and I end up leaving at the same time. I go out to my car and I thought, even though, since it had been about 20, 30 minutes, that my oldest and my youngest were both in the van with Megan. I get in my car, the Ford Edge, and I back out and drive down the road, and I kept hearing noises in the back, and I thought it was like papers moving around when I took a turn, and I get on Spitler. I don't live far from the church. I get on Spitler, and I look in the rearview mirror, and it was surprising. There's Mercedes sitting there. I did not know she was in the car with me. I thought for sure she was with Megan in the van, <laughs> and she was so quiet. She didn't say anything. She was already there when I got out there, and so I'm halfway to the to the church, actually almost to the church, and just look behind me, and I'm surprised when I look in the rearview mirror and see her. <laughs> Likewise, I believe in this bi- biblical incident, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, they were surprised. They're doing something, but it's not of God. And God, His grace and His, and His mercy intervenes. You know, over the course of several months, uh, a man, Peter Skillman, conducted a study pitting the skill of elite university students against that of the average kindergartner. Now, who do you think is going to win a contest of making something? The elite university students or the kindergartners? 
Generally, we would think the elite university students are going to win the engineering contest, right? Groups of four built structures using 20 pieces of spaghetti, one yard of tape, one yard of string, and one marshmallow. The only role, the marshmallow had to end up on top. Business students began by diagnosing the task, formulating a solution, and assigning roles. The kindergartners, by contrast, got right to work, trying, failing, and trying again. So kindergartners are working on it. The business majors are talking about it. Author Daniel Coyle explains the outcome. We presume skilled individuals will combine to produce skilled performance. But this assumption is wrong. In dozens of trials, not just one, in dozens of trials, the kindergartners built structures that averaged 26 inches tall, while the business school students built structures that averaged less than 10 inches. A 16-inch difference between the kindergartners and the business school students. The, the business school students lost to the kindergartners by 16 plus inches. We see smart, experienced business school students, and we find it difficult to imagine that they would combine to produce a poor performance. We see unsophisticated, inexperienced kindergartners, and we find it difficult to imagine that they would combine to produce a successful performance. Individual skills are not what matters. What matters is the interaction. The kindergartners succeeded, not because they are smarter, but because they work together in a smarter way. They are tapping into a simple and powerful method in which a group of ordinary people can create a performance far beyond the sum of their parts. Well, in this Bible story, as many of you may know, the people come together. The people of Shinar, which is actually Babylon area. They come together, and they came together to accomplish a task. And they were doing okay, except it wasn't God's task for them. It wasn't God's will for them. Our abilities to build and communicate are quite amazing, aren't they? Today, we will look at the Tower of Babel incident. Now, what is with this story? Why does it matter? Well, let's find out. We see today the Tower of Babel. God intervenes to help humanity prevent sin. Get this. Why does it matter? God is intervening to help humanity and prevent sin. And remember, as I keep emphasizing, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are all heading towards Abraham. Abraham shows up at the very end of this chapter. And then in the very next chapter... God makes a covenant with Abraham. The rest of the Bible, from Genesis 12 onward, from the end of Genesis 11 onward, is all about the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, and those grafted in. Christians are grafted in. And the more I read the Bible, the more I study the Bible, the more this is coming together. The grand narrative of Scripture is all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to God wanting to save humanity. Even right here in this Tower of Babel incident, God is intervening to prevent further sin. Just look at it. 
In verses one through four, we see the sin. All human beings, are, all human beings attempt to unify themselves for their own glory. Look at it. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Notice how many times we see certain pronouns, we, us. Let us make a name for ourselves. It was all about them. This section seems, by the way, to not be after Genesis 10, but sometime during Genesis 10. In other words, the Bible is not always chronological. This takes place sometime in Genesis 10. Genesis 10 uh, was a broad picture, a broad picture of the descendants of the descendants of Noah. And this is a story within that story. The whole earth was using the same language or middle, more literally, more literally, they were using one set of words. This does not mean simple language. Instead, instead, it means one language. One source shares a Tower of Babylon incident occurred earlier than at least some of the events of chapter 10. Since the whole earth still had the same language and vocabulary. And even in Genesis 10, we see the idea of separate languages come up. I like what one uh, John MacArthur shares. God who made man as the one creature with whom he could speak. Was to take the gift of language and use it to divide the race. For the apostate worship at Babel indicated that man had turned against God in pride. This incident, this apostate worship in Babel, was indicative, was showing that man had turned against the Lord in pride. They journey east. You know what it means in the Bible and Genesis when they journey east? It's bad. It's negative. It's not good. To go east means to go away from God, not towards God, to go away from God. Some of the Hamites migrated east, specifically southeast, to the plains of Shinar. Uh, this was in the Mesopotamian basin. This is modern-day Iraq, in case you're wondering. One writes, in light of such intentional uses of the notion of eastward within the Genesis narratives, we can see that here, too, the author intentionally draws the story of the founding of Babylon into the larger scheme at work throughout the book. It is a scheme that contrasts God's way of blessing, which is Eden in the promised land, with man's own attempt to find the good. In the Genesis narratives, when man goes east, he leaves a land of blessing and goes to a land where the greatest of his hopes will turn to ruin, Babylon and Sodom. Journeying east is indicative of journeying away from God, not towards God. The land of Shinar corresponds to ancient Babylonia and includes the regions, uh, the region of the cities of Babylon, Iraq, Akkad, and Kana. They migrated from the east, can be translated migrated eastward. They find a plain. But guess what? God had commanded them to fill the earth. That was in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 9. God had commanded them to fill the earth. But they were all together in one place. So God in his mercy is going to help them spread out. This is God's grace. This is God's mercy. They are going against God. Verse three continues now with what is going to happen. Notice they say, let us, 
This is echoing God's language from Genesis chapter 1. They say, let us. They, they want to be like God. Verse 4, they're all gathered all together and they're all united in a common purpose, but it's the wrong purpose. The people's pride and ambition is expressed in three different ways. Number one, the fivefold use of the first, pro, first person pronoun. Fivefold use of the first person pronoun. Us, ourselves, and we. Then we see their desire to build a tower into the sky, thus giving them access to the heavens, which is the domain of God. Then number three, we see their attempt at self-glorification. Let us make a name for ourselves because they did it to avoid being scattered throughout the earth. All their efforts amounted to rebellion against God and his command to fill the earth. Now, just as a reminder, I've made the case repeatedly that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are foundational to the Bible. They're also foundational to life. Do we do this? Do we make things all about us? Look at our world today. Is it not self-absorbed? I really love the Friends idea, the Quaker idea of simplicity. And I'm becoming more and more and more convicted of it. We were on vacation a few weeks ago in Florida. Kids want to get something, of course. We go in a souvenir shop. Have you been in a souvenir shop recently? Have you been in one with kids? Do that. It's fun. <laughs> and if you go into one near the, near the Pensacola boardwalk, it's especially fun. There's like no room to walk, a bunch of little chintzy items that usually end up at Goodwill or, or our great giveaway. You know? And I sat down and we had dinner with our kids and my parents and I said, listen, we'll let you buy a few items. But overall, these go against our core values as a family. I explained to them core values. Simplicity. Don't store up your, don't store up your um, treasures with moth and rust and things where thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasures in heaven. Are we not self-absorbed? Look at what continuously is going on in our culture right now. We're no better than these people at the Tower of Babylon. Tower of Babel. They're self-absorbed. And as we think of this, think of Stonehenge. You've seen pictures of Stonehenge. There's some type of, of, of pagan worship going on here, and God intervenes. And it made me think of something. I was scrolling through old pictures that I saved yesterday, and I thought of something. Self-absorption. Here's a page from John Wesley's diary. You may not know the name John Wesley, but you might know the name Methodist. John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist denomination, the Methodist church, and he was very evangelical in the 1700s. He wrote, Sunday morning, May 5th, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. That's nice of them. Sunday p.m., May 5th, preached at St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., May 12th. This is like 1738, by the way. Sunday a.m., May 12th, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday p.m., May 12th, preached at St. George's, kicked out again. Sunday a.m., May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's. <laughs> That's an interesting name. Deacons called it special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m., May 26th, preached in Meadow, 
chased out a meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Sounds exciting. Sunday a.m., June 2nd, preached at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m., June 2nd, afternoon service, preached in pasture. 10,000 people came to hear. John Wesley and George Whitfield both started open-field preaching, which led to the Great Awakening. That all started because John Wesley was preaching a gospel message. And as he preached a gospel message, they were not happy to hear what he had to say. His journal would say in other entries, he offended some of the most influential people in the congregation. He, He offended them. They needed a great awakening and this movement that John Wesley, George Whitfield, and others, God used them. God used them to, to start this movement and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands were saved. They were saved on the street. They were kicked out of the church. So you think of being self-absorbed. They're self-absorbed here. They're doing something that, that's not of God. It's, 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 it's of their own interest. Make a name for ourselves. This is ignorance and insurrection. They said, lest we be dispersed or be scattered. They said, let us. They said, we want to build a city, a tower that reaches the heavens. Make for ourselves a name. Notice that repetition, us, ourselves, and we. This is human pride. This is human depravity. God is not as much judging them, but rather in his grace, he is saving them from their own sin by scattering them. He is intervening to save them from their own sin by scattering them. God had told the people to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And what are they doing? They're not filling the earth. They're coming together and they're doing some type of pagan worship. One one, one writes, humanity's great sin is in any event explicitly indicated in verse four, centered in their collective desire expressed with one voice. Come let us to build for ourselves a city and a tower and make for ourselves a name. In other words, the building project itself did not represent man's sin. Instead, the sin was in the purpose. The sin was in the purpose for which the building project was undertaken to make for ourselves a name. It wasn't the building project itself. It wasn't what they were building. It was in the purpose. It was about making a name for themselves. It was about their own pride. And it's about the rejection of what God had called them to do, to spread out. This is, in in essence, the first expression of secular humanism, the promotion of human values and achievement to the exclusion of theological ones. In contrast, God promises Abraham that as part of the promised blessing, God would make his name great. In the very next chapter, in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that God will make his name great. Abraham didn't make his name great. God did it. We see the sentence, God scatters them by confusing their language at the Tower of Babel. Look at verses 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God is speaking. He says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. So that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off the building. They left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the people. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The Lord intervenes. It says the Lord comes down. That phrase is anthropomorphic. I like using that word. Anthropomorphic. It means it's ascribing to God human attributes. God doesn't literally have to come down. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God knows what's going on. 
The Lord knows what's going on and he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he comes down. And then verse five, he says, uh, he comes down and sees what the children of man had built. When it says children of man, this seems to be emphasizing the descendants of humanity are multiplying. God is faithful. I talked about that last Sunday with the genealogy. God is faithful. He continues to allow humanity to multiply. God is in control. And we need to, act, we need to recognize we are immersed in a culture that does not want to give God credit. We want to give man credit. We do not want to submit and surrender to God. We're taught be yourself. We're taught all about self from babyhood to death in our culture. And the Bible is all about God. Now, it is about his love for us, definitely. His love for us so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. What's 1 Corinthians 10, 31 say? I know you haven't memorized. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What's Paul saying? Galatians 2, 20. I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself as a ransom for me. I was listening to Alistair Bay preach on the radio once. He's a Scottish guy up north. And he said, I don't even know what he was preaching about, but he said, I know you're getting, I wish I could say it with a Scottish accent. That'd be so cool. He said, I know you're getting tired of me saying this stuff. You don't like what I'm telling you. And then he said, you need this stuff. And there's many times that we read in the Word of God, we read in the Bible, or you may hear me or another preacher, Bible teacher, preacher saying, you don't like it. That doesn't mean you don't need it. I don't like it when the doctor tells me my cholesterol's high or my blood pressure's high or my weight's too. I don't know why she always talks about my weight. I don't talk about her weight. Anyways, uh, <laughs> right? Um, we don't like it, but that doesn't mean we don't need it. There's many things we need from the Word of God, and the greatest need of all is we need to submit and surrender to Him and make Him Lord of our life. And in this text, they're not surrendered to him. It's all about self. And God intervenes. The Lord speaks. Who's the Lord talking to, by the way? It seems to be just like in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 24. And throughout that passage, God is speaking to either the angels or the Godhead. This could also be just ascribing to God human attributes. I need to say something in case anybody knows my doctor. My doctor's not overweight. I'm totally kidding about talking about her weight, but she does keep bringing up my weight. Anyways, um, God has great concern in this passage that in their depravity with the, with the same language and the same location, it could lead to very bad things. In their depravity with the same language and the same language, God knew, same place, same language, it can lead to very bad things. Right? Oftentimes when we do all come together and in our sinful state, we don't do good things. And God knows that. God intervenes. He does what they were trying to prevent in an act of grace. God confuses their language. God says, let us go down. Again, anthropomorphic language as God is omnipresent. By the way, perhaps the most dramatic Hebrew wordplay in the Tower of Babylon episode involves a deliberate reversal of sounds between verse 3 and verse 7. Humans created brick, a word that contains a sound sequence, L, B, N in Hebrew. And they created that to rebel against God. In response, God created confusion, a Hebrew word containing N, B, L, 
to reverse the evil human plot. So for the Hebrew people reading this or listening to this in the very beginning, there was a wordplay that God inspired Moses to use. Some scholars believe that this judgment also involved the implantation of ethnic and racial distinctions in humankind. And that's quite possible. Verse 8 gets interesting. The Lord had already confused their language, and now it says the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. It seems that God is confusing their language and scattering them. The name of that city was called Babel, which means to confuse. The Lord confused the language of the whole earth and he scattered them. The Net Bible brings up something. Babel, here is the climax of the account. It's a parody on the pride of Babylon. In the Babylonian literature, the name Babel uh, or Babylon meant the gate of God. That's the Babylon literature. However, in Hebrew, it sounds like the word for confusion. The word Babel in Hebrew sounds like the word for confusion. And so retain that connotation. The name Babel is Babel in Hebrew. Babel in Hebrew. And the verb translated confused is Balal from a, what's called a, and that, and that forms what's called a paranomasia, paranomasia, which is a sound play. So there's a sound play used here. And that's something God was using Moses to do to help teach the people. Moody Bible Commentary shares, just as he graciously prevented humanity from expressing their collective rejection of him by confusing their language and causing them to scatter, so he will graciously enable them to one day express their collective worship of him by restoring to them a clarified speech to serve him in one accord. A foretaste of this was given at Pentecost on the day the church was born when the language of the people was clarified and the gospel was heard by all. So let me explain that. Someday, we will all worship the Lord together. If you read Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 11, they all have their own languages and we all come to worship the Lord together. So God graciously separated them for their common good right here. And someday, God brings us all together again through Jesus And we saw a foretaste of that at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when God spiritually enabled them to speak tongues they did not know, to understand tongues they did not know. Let's make some applications in review. They wanted to make themselves a name. We must always be about God's name. We must not be prideful. And we could park on that more and more and more with what's going on in our world today. But uh, we won't. Just remember, we must be about the Lord. God had told them to multiply and fill the earth. That was Genesis chapter nine, verse one. Yet they all came to one place. We must obey the Lord's instructions. By the way, are we spreading the gospel? God told us to spread the gospel. Are we holding that to ourselves? Are we praying to God, give me an opportunity to share my faith with someone? The Lord intervened and praise God that he did. The Lord prevented further sin. Rather than thinking like a child, and thinking that God deprived them of their opportunities, we must understand God acted for the betterment of humanity. We must worship the Lord for his goodness. We must objectively consider how God acted in history and try to notice his goodness. Someday, God through the Holy Spirit will bring many, will bring uh, unity, I'm sorry. Someday, God through the Holy Spirit will bring unity to the people for a good thing. You know that Jesus prayed that the church would be united In John 17, verse 21, to this day, to this day, there is more sin in a city. Many times people come together, not for good, 
but for bad. And historically, that's been the case. If you go to the cities, there's more depravity and there's more sin. This is not the first time. In just a few chapters, we see the Sodom and Gomorrah incident. And God is always intervening based off his plan and his grace. I saw something yesterday and I was reminded of it. And I think it applies as we close this up. A man went to church. He forgot to switch off his phone. And it rang in the church accidentally during prayer. The pastor scolded him. The worshipers admonished him after prayers for interrupting the silence. His wife kept on lecturing him on his carelessness all the way home. One could see the shame, embarrassment, and humiliation on his face. After all this, after all this, he never stepped foot in church again. And that evening, he went to a bar. He was still nervous and trembling. He spilled his drink on the table by accident. The waiter apologized and gave him a napkin to clean himself. The janitor mopped the floor. The female manager offered him a complimentary drink. She also gave him a huge hug and a peck while saying, Don't worry, man. Who doesn't make mistakes? He has not, he has not stopped going to the bar since then. As Christians, we have to continuously seek the Lord. We have to continuously seek his will. And part of that is individual spiritual disciplines and corporate spiritual disciplines. Our individual spiritual disciplines are our own daily time with the Lord, our daily prayer time, our daily devotions, our time in his word, our corporate spiritual disciplines, our time with our church family, prayer partners, accountability partners, small groups, Sunday school class, worship, and things like that. You know what else we have to do that goes along with that little story there? Is as people come in, we gotta love them and support them. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love believes all things. I'm amazed at how often we jump to the negative conclusion, not the positive one. I'm amazed at how often when we hear something about someone, we immediately jump to the conclusion that somebody had bad intentions as opposed to thinking their intentions were positive. Love believes all things. I think that's important for community. And one other thing. Somebody sent me this this last week, and it was, it was really good. A pastor went to dinner at somebody's house. After dinner, he left, and the husband and wife were cleaning up. And the wife said, I'm missing a spoon. I think the pastor took my spoon. I'm missing a spoon. She couldn't say anything about it, and all year long, she wouldn't say anything about it until the next year, she invited him to dinner again. And now a year later, she said, she just couldn't resist, and she said, look, pastor, last time you were here, I had a spoon, and after you were gone, I don't know what happened to the spoon. I couldn't find it anywhere. And he said, oh, I put it in your Bible. The spoon was in the Bible all along for a whole year, and they didn't notice. I encourage you, as we close this, seek the Lord. Follow the Lord's will. Seek the Lord in his word. Seek the Lord in prayer. Seek the Lord with the people of God as much as he can. And first and foremost, be committed to him. Pray that you desire him. Psalm 1611 says about God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in God's presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If everything else is taken away, is God enough? Or are you seeking, are we seeking other things to soothe us other than the Lord? There will always only be temporary satisfaction. And you can't have it all. 
But God wants to give you himself. God wants you to be with him, to live with him. Let's pray. Lord God, we see in this account here in Genesis 11, the people not seeking you and not following your will, but following their own desires, rejecting your will that they scatter. And you and your grace and your mercy, we see you intervened. You helped them, you supported them by spreading them out. They probably weren't happy, but it was still for the best. Just like our children are not happy when we take something away, but we are for their best. Now, Lord, I'm gonna ask you right now, even if it makes us not happy, do to us what we need. If you need to take away something that's taken the place of you, take it away. If you need to put us in positions to make us grow spiritually, make us depend upon you, do it, Lord, do it. Make us depend upon you. Make us live with you. Make us organize our affairs around you. Get us to a place where we bow our knees to you. And Lord God, if there's any here right now who strayed from you, may today be the day where they turn back to you, where they turn back. And we know, Lord, you are faithful and you are just. You forgive us our sins. You cleanse us. You cleanse us. You are a forgiving God and we come to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. As they lead their closing song, the altars are opened. And I want to keep on emphasizing, you know, when I say things about coming to the altars for prayer, there should be A, no shame. B, some people feel uncomfortable coming forward. Don't feel uncomfortable coming forward. That's what we need to do. We have people that will be here to pray with you. Secondly, it's not just for you. Maybe you want to pray for a loved one going through a sickness or illness. Maybe you want to come pray, pray for somebody else. That's fine. Whatever you're going through. It could be anxiety or depression. It could be a work-related issue. It could be a sickness you're going through or someone else is going through. It could be the salvation of your children or grandchildren. We should all be praying for our children and grandchildren and family members to be saved. Come on forward. Don't, don't, don't be ashamed to come forward. And we'll have uh, people up here to pray with you. Amen. As we conclude, we're going to conclude with He is our peace. Talking about